they were at 39, we were at 65, we wanted 80% cash, they wanted 100% stock, and we just kept talking in circles around this. And finally, we were on a Skype conversation one day, and I just said, you know what, we're just too far apart. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 129, and I know you're going to love this episode. And the reason is because of my show, if you've been an avid listener for a long time and been a truthful fan, I very much appreciate it. But also, the things that you realize that I interview a lot of advisors who are technical experts on things that have to do with growing and selling companies, and the other half of the people that I interview are entrepreneurs who are willing to share their story of growing and exiting their company, and the ups and downs and the pros and cons that they had along the way. And one of the biggest struggles is to find entrepreneurs and owners who have sold that are willing to lay it all out there, be transparent so it's valuable to you, the listeners, so that way you're not just getting the fluff, but you're actually understanding what the inherent challenges are of growing and selling a company. And a lot of times, entrepreneurs and owners who have sold have earnouts or they've got rolled equity into the private equity or they're in the ESEP. So there's ties to that business, whether it is financially or even their reputation, where people have a hard time disclosing the actual problems with it. And there is a laundry list of people that I would love to have on this show that we've communicated to and they have horrible stories or big challenges and they can't share it because they are still owed a bunch of money or they have a big reputation issue because of who they sold to. So it's very difficult to find these people that are willing to share everything. And Stephanie Breedlove is on the show today. And what was awesome about Stephanie, how she shared her story is how unbelievably authentic she is, real in sharing what worked and what didn't work. And it was awesome because her company that she sold to now is public. So all the numbers are disclosed. So she shares how she bootstrapped the business to grow it, finally hitting that million dollar mark, determining what they're gonna do next, growing it even more into literally a cash machine that was doing top line 9 million and bottom line 4.5 in EBITDA to selling the business to care.com for over $50 million. And she shares her ins and outs of the entire journey. And it was absolutely a blast and an honor to have her on the show. She is also an author now of a book called All In, which is her way of giving back to women entrepreneurs that can now get the resources to help them grow and scale their businesses. And this episode is absolutely a must listen to. So before I kick it off into the interview, a couple last little notes is one is we are close to the first phase of our book being done, which is going to be an absolute awesome event that we launch in, I think it's going to be mid-summer-ish, I think we're shooting for, and it is going to be the entire manual of our process of how to grow and exit a company. So it's going to include all of our five principles and the process, so that way you, the owner, can put all of the control back in your hands. And then the other final note is I've got a couple more slots of people that I want to open up to specifically engage in a one-on-one where I'm sitting down with people 
people on a Zoom or an in-person call, depending on where they're at, for one-on-one weekly calls to help them accelerate where they wanna go in a growth and exit plan. They're not ready for a large engagement, but they just want help connecting a bunch of dots. This is more for the do-it-yourselfers that are just really looking to accelerate where they're going. So I'm doing one-on-one calls each week, and that is 2,500 bucks a month. I got a couple slots left. If you're interested, reach out to me. Otherwise, I really hope you enjoy this episode. It is everything you want out of a story from someone that has grown and sold a company. Stephanie's the bomb. So without further ado, here's Stephanie Breedlove. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Good morning, Stephanie. How are you? Good morning, Ryan. I'm great. Happy to be here. I'm uh, super excited for this because you and I actually, I saw you speak. Well, first of all, I actually saw, I listened to you on Warlow's podcast. I think it was over two years ago. And then at John Warlow's Value Building Summit, you shared even more of your story. And there was so many reasons I wanted to have you on the show. And one of them is because you have a, just a ridiculous success story. And I guess success, success is relative and you'll be able to share with us in your definition, but also is how transparent and open you were about your story, which I think is very rare because as you mentioned, you're the company that you built to is now public. So it, there's a lot of stuff that's public and you're able to share with us um, some of the things that some people on the show might not be able to for various reasons. But so I'm excited. And so the people that do not know your background, let's like, where did you decide or not decide or how did you how did you start as an entrepreneur? Like what, what trait, what was the triggering event? Well, I'll start with saying thank you for the kind words. Um, and I really do believe that when people come on podcasts like yours, um, we play things close to the vest, uh, whether we have to legally, you know, or we just want to, because we, we don't want to out the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the reality is we all have the good, the bad, and the ugly that actually, informs the best parts of the journey and i don't have any trouble sharing that because it's real life so um so thank you for those kind words but background um i I will start off by letting the listeners know that i've been an entrepreneur for 25 years so it's not been a new journey for me um and stepped into entrepreneurship in the mid-1990s so to, to give some context um and the reason i share that is in coming out of business school in the late 1980s, technology had really not enabled you know, the, the entrepreneur that could scale. So you were either gonna go to work for you know, a small regional or even local firm, or you were gonna go to work for corporate America and the Fortune 1000, literally. And that's what I did. And um, my husband and I went from graduate school, married, um, into the Fortune 1000 and really thought that, you know, that was going to inform the direction um, of each of our professional careers. And by the mid-1990s, I had two children born 16 months apart in 1991 and 1993. And I was working for now Accenture, but it was Anderson Consulting at the time. Um, and 
in the early 1990s was one of those few women not yet in upper management who'd kind of made a life choice to go back to work and pursue a career and not to pay the mortgage, you know, but, uh, you know, as, you know, as a core tenant of the way we wanted to live our life. And I know this sounds awfully philosophical, but that was the, that was real angst in the early 1990s um, and pivotal points in life. So now fast forward into the early to mid 90s and I'm sort of living this life of this full-time career person with two sons that are 16 months apart, you know, with a spouse who had, you know, signed on for kind of this equality in life. He had left consulting at Ernst & Young at 60 hours a week to take a job in finance with Coors, which was a very family-oriented company. Great job, but 45 hours a week instead of 60 hours a week. Yeah, big difference. <laughs> yeah, and, and the reason I share this is, is that I think entrepreneurship came out of sort of this life commitment of, okay, we're, we're going to look a little different than most of the couples around us in the early 1990s. And if we're going to, you know, focus a core part of our life on a professional career, which is very standard today for, for almost all women, then, then where's the true calling? Where are the real talents? Where's the most fun? Mm -hmm. um, and we started having all of these crazy discussions. I'm not kidding. It would be like on the way to the OBGYN office or while I was on maternity <laughs> leave. Yeah. Of, you know, hey, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we started our own gig? What would that look like? And we were these two corporate kids. Um, and really what that translated into is I had gone back to work, a business out of our own personal need and passion, which I think some of um, the best odd entrepreneurial ideas come out of that personal experience. Mm -hmm. And we'd hired a full-time nanny, which was not a common thing to do back in the early 1990s. I actually had uh, peers at Anderson Consulting say to me, you hired a what? I mean, is this your grandma? Did she, <laughs> did she, did she actually come over from England if she's a nanny? Um, and I mean, just to give you some context, and we decided we wanted to do the right thing. We wanted her to hopefully be a part of our life for a long period of time, and we wanted to pay her well, and we wanted to give her benefits, and we wanted to pay her legally, and we wanted her to have retirement someday, um, you know, something most of America doesn't do. And um, we basically stepped into paying nanny payroll and taxes. And um, we thought this could be a business idea. You know, maybe women will return to work with regularity um, and build careers. And hey, maybe the elderly will age at home, which had not yet started to happen with right. the advancement of modern medicine. And cheap, uh, cheap, talk was cheap because I love talking about it. I love talking about this idea of maybe we could do payroll taxes and benefits for people with in-home care. I mean, how odd and rare is that? How did you land on that out of like all those, out of all the challenges and like the fact that it was a newer market and stuff like that? How did you land on that specifically? Well, we landed on it because we were doing it for our nanny and mm -hmm. it was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> we both had MBAs. We both worked for, had worked for uh, audit and tax companies with Ernst & Young and Anderson Consulting, Arthur Anderson, which now doesn't exist. Um, and it was an absolute nightmare to figure out how to do it right, as we kept calling this. And we kept having friends say, hey, can you help us with that? We think we want to do that right. We might run for office someday. I think it's the right thing to do. <laughs> um, and we thought, you know, 
maybe this is a business idea. Um, and for me, as I said, talk was cheap. I loved talking about it. And so right. maybe there was a calling in there to be an entrepreneur because I loved talking about it. It was one of my most fun things to do. And I, I have to admit that my husband was the one who said, you know, you know I, I, I think we should do this. And by the way, I think you should take the leap and take this company national. Think you could do this. Think it'd be fun. And if it doesn't fly after about three years, well, no big loss. You know, we won't we won't have any college fund and we won't have any savings and no rest. Come on, let's do it. Hopefully we won't have put too much debt. Maybe our parents will invest and you just go back to work if it doesn't work. Um, and I was like, Yeah, okay, right. And and then finally after about a year, I said, Okay. Um, and this was this was nineteen ninety five. So fast forward in 1995, I took the leap to try to start this nanny payroll tax and benefits company uh, national in its space when about 2% of America actually paid their in-home care legally. Today, it's about 15%. So it's not a lot, but it's a lot more than when we started. We, we were in a t space where you know, entrepreneurship was not a real a common career and a bank wasn't going to give us a loan. And to be honest with you, even though both of our parents were in a position to be able to invest at, at a small amount, uh, neither wanted to. They didn't want to touch this idea with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> and they I'd love to been a fly in the wall during that. During that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there were two different conversations with, with each of <laughs> <some> parents, <laughs> you know, which we were like, well, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> And so we, we had, I'll be, I'll be honest, we had about 45000 in the bank. We had my husband's salary. Um, and we did a really, really detailed formal budget of what we thought revenue growth um, and, and the personal side of expenses um, would look like. And we could make it for two and a half years before I'd have to go back to work. Um, and we began to turn the corner in about two years and four months. Um, that's awesome. and, and, and that's the start. Um, and I probably gave you a lot more information. No, no. And I got one, I got one context. One major follow-up question on that. Did you pay your nannies salary and benefits and payroll and all that stuff while you were doing that? Absolutely. <laughs> cause I was just like in that formal budget. You're like, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah cause it's, it's, what an amazing situation. So how, how, like, how did you go acquire your first clients and like, what was like some of the major milestones you know, up to that two in the, you know, two years and four months or whatever it was. And then how, what was the turning point? So the biggest challenge throughout the, the duration um, of our 22 years before exit was acquiring the client. Um, when you're at the end of the day, a, a, a B to C company, I hesitate there because it was kind of a, a B to B to C mm -hmm. uh, in which you're trying to reach a family who has hired either a full-time nanny or full-time elder care yep. at the time that they make the hire with the right level of education to help them pull the trigger and make the decision to not only pay legally, but to use your firm. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. Right. Uh, so, so marketing was really hard. And the focus that we put on marketing was twofold. One was what could we do without any capital to invest in broad scale blitz like marketing. Mm -hmm. So we focused on building business development partnerships with small companies across the country who place in home childcare uh, and elder cool. care. Yep. Um, and that was the focus in marketing for the first two years. I got on a plane every 
four to six weeks um, and we'll go to two or three cities and stay out for about five days because we couldn't afford to fly back and forth. Um, and I would basically meet, educate, train, um, and form a little bit of trust and relationship with these small companies who are placing in-home care mm -hmm. to be our, our referral arm, if you will. And over two years, I looked up and we had 125 relationships and that's when we were off and running. That was the turning point. So a couple questions on that. Um, when you were doing this, Stephanie, especially because you and your husband are MBAs, you know, diving into the numbers and all that stuff. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs that just go, hey, let's give this a shot with zero thinking behind it. But what, you know, and then this is kind of the, 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 the reason behind my question is, what was your vision? So you said you love talking about the problem, right? And you wanted to go solve it. Did you like, and it might be difficult to look back and did you intend on an exit? Was it like, let's create a hundred million dollar company. You had said you wanted to go national, but like what drove you and was there foresight in the, the eventual like outcome or the, the end part of the story? Yeah. The, the answer is at the outset, absolutely not. We did not have that vision. Um, we did not have that goal. It was an evolution. And, and I don't want to say we were small thinking, but I think it was an evolution. When you're a bootstrap entrepreneur, you know, goal number one is, is to, you know, simply break even. <laughs> pay the bills. Pay the bills and have a, have a little bit of money to plow back into the company <laughs> to see if that's enough um, to get it to continue to grow. Goal number two was once we became profitable was to be able to successfully grow out of profitability which you know that's a rare concept in today's day and age of mm -hmm. you know I, I i need lots of funding in order to do what i want to do and learning to grow out of profitability uh, i think was a goal achieved that really informed the rest of the evolution the journey and, and to answer your question about the time that we realized that you know, we weren't just going to make it, but we were crossing over that million dollar mark. Um, and I will say this, I took the leap um, into entrepreneurship on my own as the first co-founder. And it took three years uh, to be able to cross over breaking even and then say, okay, we're going to make it. How do we hire? How do we grow? How do we build next? And um, the decision that we made was not to hire uh, a lot of folks to work underneath me with the you know, the, the little bit of nest egg that we had to start to invest um, in our human capital. We actually took the leap by bringing on a second co-founder and that was my husband. And we had the discussion of, should I bring on an equity partner and give him 10%? You know, should I bring on a middle level manager style person to offload, you know, some of the, the, the mid to high level work? And I just had this gut sense that if we were really going to do something big to go back to answering your question we need a power at the top and my husband had been burning the midnight oil behind the scenes had the passion understood the business was willing to sacrifice and we decided we were willing to put all the eggs in one basket because of those pros because of what he could bring to the business and his mindset and we saw it through the same lens so three years in we hired two people and he joined the business um, and that was the best decision we ever made because that commitment at the top helped us to, to really explode. And so now fast forward to we, did we want an exit? You know, we went from breaking even to learning to grow out of profitability 
to crossing that million dollar mark um, and actually having an acquisition offer bought from a competitor um, who really wanted to take us out. Um, and that was the reason for the acquisition offer. And we were below the million dollar mark at that point in time. And that was a little bit of a wake up call. And we said, you know what? We really like doing this back to my story in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. We, we are passionate about this. We love building, growing businesses. We love the industry we're in. I had had a newfound passion for, I had someone call me a civil rights advocate, if you will, advocating for a group oh, yeah. of workers in America who didn't really have professional pay, um, retirement benefits, um, it, you know, and that kind so of woke up that alone, right? I mean, like, yeah, no. And I mean, that sort of built that social entrepreneur side of me a little bit. Mm -hmm. One day we were probably, I would say about six years in, and we sat down and said, okay, we have a thousand active clients and, you know, we have about half a million dollars in revenue and um, we're a small business and we're making it. And, you know, we've got, we in the payroll business are very high margins and I don't mind sharing this. I mean, we had a bit of a couple hundred thousand dollars and this was the late 1990s. And we said- On 500 who, grand in top line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and we said, you know, is this who we want to be? And what does the industry look like? And we stepped back and said, okay, let's not be the small thinking, small entrepreneur anymore. Let's think big. Um, we have, you know, an industry with 10 million in-home care workers. Uh, we know that, 500,000 people currently pay legally and we have a thousand of them on our service. So why can't we have 10,000 active clients or 50,000 someday or a hundred thousand someday and grow this business to be a mid market level business mm -hmm. and, you know, grow it to be our legacy and our legacy being, you know, who knows, maybe we'll, you know, end up in, in joint venture. Maybe we'll end up being acquired. Uh, maybe you will end up setting up, you know, an ESOP and becoming the board of directors. So at about six years into the 22-year journey, we really began to think strategically, at least once a year when you pull your head up from running a small business, um, about what a big next looks like. Mm -hmm. And those things like exit and acquisition, you know, were on the list someday. Where were you getting your information from, Stephanie? Because like you just rattled off a bunch of stuff like between the ESOP and the stuff that, you know, the different things like that were like a acquisition or a partnership or stuff. Was there stuff in the schooling that you did or was there resources back then to even have the awareness that those were possibilities out there? Ryan, that is an excellent question. And I, I sit here today talking like I'm an expert, but the reality is I, neither me nor my co-founder, my husband, you know, were really well-versed, but we felt we had a responsibility to become well-versed. Um, and total transparency, I come from a software development background in the finance and tax world. So I had, you know, brushing up a little bit of, uh, against the, the financial industry to know where to go to get some information. Mm -hmm. And my husband jumped into our business from doing joint venture work with Coors. Uh, that was his responsibility when mm -hmm. he was with Coors. And so he had some background and understanding that was instrumental um, mm -hmm. in the co-founder team. Um, but what did we do? We really, we really just went to school and learned. If somebody bought our company someday, what would that somebody look like? 
I mean, we didn't have these sophisticated conversations about, you know, what an exit looks like and how it would be structured and um, what would be the core tenants. It was simpler than that. It was, okay, if somebody wanted to buy us someday, what would that look like and who would those people be? And we would just try to read. You know, the internet had become our friend, you know, in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Um, and we really just went to school and we just continued to read. And I don't mean we sat around and read deep books on a regular basis. We were busy running a business, but we made sure that, you know, on a quarterly basis or you know, even on an annual basis, we were reading about what is private equity. And if we ever get to a point where, you know, we need capital or we have a good size that would fit them and who are they? And and would that be a good avenue for us? If we were acquired, who would acquire us and who would be interested in acquiring us? And we learned that it would probably be a financial services firm because most of our clients were upper level management and C-suite and they would love to have access to those people. We had a couple of calls from other large payroll companies who simply would love to add us to their book of business. Um, we didn't entertain acquisitions with those folks or partnerships, but we got to learn from that. And then we watched our own industry carefully. Who in our industry was doing something bigger and better than us, you know, that might want to partner or acquire us. So it wasn't real sophisticated. We just made it a priority to learn what we didn't know about what, what could, could be ours in the future. Well, I think you, you hit on something that's really, I think, crucial for the listeners or anybody that's in this position, Stephanie, is that you don't have to be an MBA or someone that has got all these security licenses or any of that stuff because what, what, I, what I took away out of that, which, you know, as you and I were chatting before the podcast, is like just being aware and like, and like learning and like asking those questions it doesn't mean you're committing to a time frame or a, a specific person, but I think it's so challenging to to talk to an owner that doesn't have any awareness where like all those things that you just mentioned how you sell and what they're going to do with your business and your relationship with that person afterwards is so different on all of the spectrum so how do you know who to say yes to for marriage if you've never dated before it's like it's literally just kind of shopping doesn't mean you have to have a specific thing in mind but like you just said you just talking about it alone can be beneficial Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head and I'm just going to offer us some tough talk that I really believe in right here early in our conversation that as a, as an owner of a company, whether you're five years in or you're 15 years in you know, or more, if you aren't at least talking about, or even doing a high level of information gathering, as you said, becoming aware about what your company could do next, not just you, but what your company could do next, then you're what's holding it back. And in the beginning, it's the understanding of formulating efficient operations, you know, with departments and job responsibilities um, and valuation and accountability and real basic stuff that takes your company to the next level, which a lot of small business owners don't do, you know, to investing at the right level in technology and for small companies it's mm -hmm. difficult we embarked upon a, a two million dollar technology enterprise development endeavor when we were only five million in revenue um, and we had been reading and learning and thinking and talking to partners that could help us do that you know to like you said just being aware of 
you know, once we were a 15 year old company, if we weren't talking about and becoming aware of what the world might look like for the company to grow beyond two co-founders, then we were going to be what was holding it back. And there are too many small and mid-level sized business owners um, that don't take the time to do that. And it's, it's half the battle. Right. And I want to go because I, there's two questions I want to get, I want to get into and ask, but like, to go back, I'm, I'm curious because you mentioned that the, that $2 million investment, and I think there, that there's this hump um, in revenue and profits. And I think it also ties into a lot of the, the, the energy levels of entrepreneurs where you get to this point where like, and if you're X amount in top line, you're saying, okay, you're making a half a million or maybe 700 grand in EBITDA. And it's like almost like, finally, I can buy the stuff that I want and I can take a deep breath. And then it's like, you know, there's, I think there's, there's that threshold that they allow, you know, as you and I were kind of going over some stats before we got into the show of like how many people go get above the 5 million in revenue, because I think you get above the 5 million in revenue. Now you're getting to the point where you've got surplus cash flow to continue to pile back in. How did you guys finance that 2 million or get past that hump? Or like how, what was some of the things that you did to get to the point where you're now got, you know, additional cash flow to keep reinvesting? You know, for the, the founder um, who is, either financing their company initially with debt um, or self-funded. In other words, you're beholden to nobody else. The biggest challenge every time you get up over a, a financial hump is to not let yourself get comfortable with the income um, and continue to have that discussion of, okay, if I can grow this company smartly, uh, how much do I plow back in? Which is basically not in my pocket anymore. I mean, it's that simple. You mm -hmm. know, if I'm going to invest in taking the company to the next level, it means that I have just, you know, decreased my income, you know, and that comfort level, like you said, of <laughs> buying the stuff you want to buy. I mean, I, I didn't take a paycheck for 27 months. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so, when you, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, you know, when you get to that $500,000 mark and you have 200,000 in EBITDA and you know you can grow bigger when you're just having that conversation. There's this little little voice sitting on one of your shoulders going, don't do it. Don't, yeah. don't buy don't that boat. Buy, buy, buy the new car. Go on the vacation. Um, and, and to be honest, uh, I mean, I think I would be an absolute liar if I said, oh, I didn't do any of that. I should plot it all back into the business. There's a balancing act. And right, right. probably some years when you know, we muddled along um, without the right level of investment in marketing or maybe taking the plunge into the next level of technology investment, you know, because we were, we were really comfortable and it felt good and we didn't want to take the risk. Um, but then you have a wake up call and, and, and you say to yourself, actually not just this is the right thing to do. You say to yourself, and right. this is just capitalism at its best. Okay. You know, now we're, um, we're at 5 million in revenue and um, 7,000 clients. And unless we invest and take some risk, then we can't go to 10 million in revenue and 12, 14,000 in clients. And I want that. And I want that. And I actually think that we can achieve that with the right level of investment and the right mm -hmm. level of pace. And it's not just pie in the sky and we're not just you know, drinking our own Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. And that's what brought about the technology investment. We are at the context there when, and whether it's technology or it's something operationally or marketing in your business, 
we were at a point, we were about a dozen years in at that point, and um, we had just begun to explode. Um, I really have talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, and I feel like, you know, without that fast growth infusion of capital from angel investment or, or venture capital, that it takes about 10 to 12 years of laying the foundation. And we were beginning to explode, and our technology was drowning. And we were either going to stay about the current size that we were, um, or we were going to invest at a big level um, to try to take advantage of what we felt was an opportunity with that word explosion behind it. So, and it was a huge risk. I mean, really, when you have five million in revenue and you invest two million over an eighteen-month period um, in technology that you hope is going to double the size of your company, it's a huge risk. But for us the notion of I could double the size of my company versus uh, I could sacrifice a vacation or two, you know, the scales, <laughs> yeah. the scale and the scale tipped towards, okay, I want to double the size of my mm -hmm. company. Well, and so what we're going to, a couple of things that I want to do here is one is that we'll get into the, some of the milestones because you did some, where, where you guys ended up with your revenue and your EBITDA and then the sale we'll get into. But before, before we jump into the, some of those uh, concrete facts, I'm curious, Stephanie, as you were, is you and your husband, you know, as you're, you know, you know, investing in the business or, you know, putting the $2 million in there and at the same time having these quarterly conversations and doing some in these conversations with other people, as you were refining what you and your husband wanted, I'm curious, was it like, okay, we want X amount sale or we want to sell to these people or we want this much market share? What were some of the variables or data points that you guys determined were? core objectives that you wanted out of the next stage of the business did you consciously come to those or did they come up after the fact no we we consciously came to those um and i i will say in in consciously forcing ourselves to have to to learn to be aware to be honest and transparent and true to ourselves about what we wanted and what we we were willing to take or sacrifice you know, in order to execute and exit. You know, those are, are really, really soul-searching times. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think they really, they make a difference um, in how you feel about stepping into selling a business or private equity or, or, or joint venture. And, and here's kind of how it, it went. We had... We had the benefit of time. We were now, I'm fast forwarding through the journey. I've been talking about a dozen years. So, you know, now we are about 18 years into the business and we had taken the step to do two things. Um, we had begun to grow an executive level team. We'd gone from, we had about 30, 35 employees. So this was uh, not a large team, but we needed to go from having good department managers you know, to people who could actually run the company. And not just because the founders wanted to step out, but um, as I said, people who could be at the helm of taking it to whatever next was. Mm -hmm. And when we started to do that, we spent about a year kind of grooming up a, a core group of people, about seven people. When we started to do that, that began to organically create conversations around, you know, okay, gosh, you know what, we're... We're almost 50 now. Um, we've been at this almost 20 years. 
we love what we do, um, but we see two avenues in the next, you know, five or so years. One is we dig in and we potentially bring on large-scale diversification and maybe we bring on some debt. Maybe we partner with a private equity firm, things we've never done before, the stuff mm-hmm. kind of big business. You know, or, you know, maybe we sell the company, you know, or, you know, maybe we set up an, an ESOP and this executive level team, you know, takes equity ownership and uh, we become the chairman of the board. Mm-hmm. And when we started to grow this team, it started to force us to talk about a, a big next, which mm-hmm. was possibly an exit, you know, possibly big diversification. And what happened is we said, okay, if we had the good fortune um, to be acquired, what would that look like and who would it be? And what do we think we're really worth? And Ryan, what we did is we went out probably um, a year before we were acquired and we tried to find comps, which were not easy because we were in a space in which there weren't really to compare directly. Uh, there weren't many to compare directly. Well, and in and, and that, can we, maybe this is a good time to, because you're comfortable sharing these numbers. And like, first of all, you're in a unique space because you were the industry leader in something that didn't exist when you started, but like you had a ridiculously profitable business. So we did share some of the numbers with the, with the, with the, yeah, audience. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to. I was going to, I'll share numbers. I was going to, I was going to wrap up though on the second thing that we did is we went and um, we found two valuation experts. That's what they did for a living. Okay. Um, and we just said, you know, hey, we want to keep this really simple. You know, for a few hundred bucks, I think each one of them charges probably seven or eight hundred dollars. We want to keep it really simple. We want you to? We're going to open up the kimono. We we want you to look at the details of our business, and we want you to tell us what you think it's worth. Um, multiples of revenue, multiples of EBITDA, why, and. We did that and we just filed it on the shelf. And um, did you have before you did that with them, did you had to have some range going in there, right? Was it like a scratch off hoping you're going to win because you got the number? But like, I mean, oh, our range was way higher than what they came up with. <laughs> 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 and, 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 and every single business owner, um, <laughs> even if you are aware and you've been working at being well educated and you've been working at learning this you know, very complex, you know, financial world that, um, that you want to understand a little bit if you have an opportunity to step into acquisition or, or private equity, even with all of that, because we sound, we sound pretty diligent, pretty educated, right? <laughs> um, we were, we got the valuations back and we were just like, oh brother, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and, 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 and the reality is every founder does that. I mean, that's where the ego comes in. That's where you say, oh my gosh, we're, we're 18 years in and there's still so much potential. And you know, and that's where you just do nothing but drink your own Kool-Aid and say, can everybody see it? And, uh, yeah, and that's just the reality. Um, you know, and that's the ego and the emotion. But to go back to answering your question to, to share numbers, and I'm, I'm, ha- I'm happy to. Uh, number one, in the, the payroll tax and, and, and benefit business, margins are very high, period. Um, I don't want to say that that, you know, we were so incredibly rare. However, I will say that I learned along the way that um, you know, I just, I have a strength in operational efficiency, um, invested all of this money in really strong technology, 
and it really allowed us to maximize um, our profitability and our EBITDA. So um, for probably the last 10 years of the business, we had a 50% EBITDA margin, um, which allowed us to grow so easily out of profitability. And at the time that we entered acquisition talks, uh, we had revenue of just over $9 million. So we were just under that $10 million mark. Um, and we had a compounded annual growth rate over about a 10-year period of just under 20%. So that's low if you're just chasing top-line growth. But that's strong. I won't use the word high, but that's strong for you know, a 19-year-old company you know, over the, the most recent 10 years of its business. I was going to say, let's ask, let's ask the listeners who wants a 20% rate of return every year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, some years, I mean, obviously the economy impacts every business. I mean, some years we had 5% growth and, you know, some years, you know, with, with uh, good marketing and a strong economy, you know, we had 45% growth and we averaged just under 20 over 10 years. So there's, there's the numbers I think that you were hoping I'd share with the listeners. No, and, and, and we'll, that, that'll be a good foundation as we kind of get into the triggering event. What was the process that you took to go to market and like, when did you, so a couple of things that kind of in the sweet sequence of events that you can share to, or expand on each of them as you care, if there's an underlying story, but the, as the executive team is, you know, pushing you to have these kind of more uh, in-depth, um, you know, self-reflecting questions and stuff like that, were they a part of this? And then were, what was the valuation that the evaluators came back with? And then how did that, like, maybe just, you can just walk us through, did you hire an investment banker and all the way to like, you know, what, what kind of led you to the, to the, um, to the altar? Ryan, I love telling this story because, um, the path that we chose um, on, on the answer to all of these questions is not necessarily um, the tried and true right path. Um, one thing I've, I've, I've learned is it's different for every business. And given your business and your opportunities and your potential acquirers and your own team um, and the size of your business, you know, you could, you could go a myriad um, different ways and, and still do it right. So I will say that in telling the story, I don't think I'm right, but here's what we did. First of all, uh, we were not up on the blocks to go to sale, um, but we were probably 12, 18 months into these heavy strategic philosophical discussions, you know, mm -hmm. of the next decade of our business and what would that look like? And an and exit was absolutely on the list. So there'd been a lot of conversation and we obviously it was strongly on the list because we'd even taken the steps to to get evaluation. We felt, to answer the first number, we felt that we could sell our company to a strategic buyer, which is very different from a financial buyer, and there were very few of those out there. We could sell those synergies in with, with good data of the possibility of what the future could look like with a synergistic buyer. And, you know, we thought we were worth, oh, I don't know, 60 to 80 million. Um, that, that was in our head. To be honest with you, that number 100 kept floating around, which, which, <laughs> of of course, course, right? <laughs> which was only floating around in our own conversations. We never heard it anywhere else. <laughs> like, wouldn't but, it be cool? And like, that's a really awesome number. And I like yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and to be, to be fair, I was talking about ego and drinking our own Kool-Aid, but I also think you have to dream big because if you mm -hmm. say, I think I'm worth that, then, then the next logical question is, um, we'll prove it. 
<laughs> yeah, and, right. and why? Um, you know, and, and, and we actually really couldn't even prove it to ourselves. So we had to, we had to then force ourselves to step in, in, into reality. But the valuation experts came back. Um, if we sold to a strategic buyer, a synergistic buyer, you know, with somewhere uh, between 40 and 50 million, which is where uh, the valuations, both of them, you know, mm -hmm. came back. So we did our own homework and, of course, applied, you know, our own 20-year knowledge and our own ego. And we felt that if we had the opportunity to sell to a strategic buyer, that selling for somewhere between uh, 50 and 70 million would just be a, a great, great success. Um, to, to be honest with you, the valuation expert said 40 to 50. We would have been happy with that. But it was, you know, our job to sell our story right, and right. maximize that if we had the opportunity. Well, I'm curious, uh, as you're doing that, Stephanie, and I think there's a, there's a, a component of this that a lot, of, a lot of business owners don't really wrap their head around is, there's the money, but then there's, as you guys had had these like deep conversations over the last year and a half, the money in the dollar amount is correlated to different types of buyers and then different outcomes of how they treat your business and what they do with it. Right. So like, and, and I don't know how maybe, you know, as you're kind of telling the story, how you related those different things that you determined that were important to you with the different types of offers. Absolutely. We talked about that front and center on a regular basis. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to share the thought process from a purely emotional side, right, right. Um, ignoring the financial side. We really felt that an exit wouldn't just be because we were tired of running a company and, you know, we're 50 years old and we're 20 years in and it's time to be done. We also felt that an acquisition would have to represent some kind of next level of success for the company that we built. Hmm. We just, you know, we drank that Kool-Aid and we were really committed to that. And, you know, at the end of the day, who knows, we could have gone into, an, you know, another economic downturn and business wasn't good and we would have just said sell for, for whatever is logical. But if we could have our cake and eat it too, you know, we wanted the business to be valued um, not just for its C-suite of clients, as I mentioned before, um, but for what the business delivered and hopefully um, would be valued for the potential you know, growth that it could experience you know, as a payroll tax and benefits company in the in-home care industry. And I even found myself saying sometimes, you know, listen, I really enjoy what I'm doing. We have this amazing growth. We have this amazing profitability. I'm creating generational wealth just running this business. I mean, mm -hmm. I think the listeners are probably gathering that. Yep. And I can put my egotistical foot down and say, I'm not selling unless it's to the right person, you know, the right company, the right buyer. And, and that's purely emotional. Um, but it was a part of the conversation. And that was on the list that it would have to be a good move, not just for the co-founders, um, but for the company. And we got lucky um, and we were able to execute that. But I realized that that doesn't always happen. Well, I think it's important to note though, like in what you've proven is that if you build a healthy, you know, good business, you have the ability to have that conversation where a lot of people get stuck into selling to whoever because it's the one right buyer and they don't get all the, I wish I had done these kind of things. So it's, it's, 
it's the it's the result of building a, a very healthy business. And when you go back to when you were saying that you didn't the, do it the traditional way, so maybe walk us through how you ended up <laughs> taking it to market. Was it? Yeah, yeah I'm curious of what that meant. I I love telling this story, um, and when I get to tell it in front of a live audience, I always get lots of laughs. So I'm going to pretend I can hear the laughs when I as I tell this story. <laughs> So I, got, I don't have one of those, uh, what do you call it, <laughs> like applaud, the, the laugh. Yeah. So uh, as I, I set the stage here on where we were as a business, we were at $9 million in revenue. Um, we were really feeling confident as an industry leader. We could diversify. We built this executive team. Um, we would potentially be a good exit candidate, as you know, and many of your listeners know, once you approach that $10 million mark, you start to become very attractive to a lot of potential buyers. And we could feel that. But we weren't on the blocks, but we've been having these strategic discussions. And we had a marketing partnership, very low level, mid-level management marketing partnership with Care.com, um, who is was founded in 2006, so a lot younger than we were, venture-backed, chasing top-line revenue growth, and it was a, care.com is a technology play to allow families and caregivers to find each other and match. Um, resumes, background checks, um, they facilitate the interview process, and we were providing content for their website um, around legal and financial responsibilities when you hire an in-home yeah, caregiver. Cool. And uh, we had been providing content and having basic marketing conversations back and forth when one day the CEO of care.com, Sheila Marcello, she picked up the phone and called and asked to speak to me. And um, how often, even when you're running a small business, are you available? And I happened to be available and I took the call. And that turned into about six weeks of just get to know your phone calls. You know, who are you? What is your company about? Yes, we have a marketing relationship. Could it be a stronger relationship? We fit really well together. You know, care.com helps to bring the relationship together and then you help manage the relationship. Could be a great marriage. What does that mean? Finally, after about six weeks, um, I finally just said, <laughs> you obviously have a motivation here and you're being very respectful um, and very kind to, I, I guess, what you perceive as a small business owner who might be uncomfortable with a much larger company breathing down their neck saying, hey, you want a partner? Hey, you want to be acquired? Hey, let's get into talks. <laughs> um, and I finally just said, I said, I appreciate how much we've learned about each other and your respectfulness of of where I am in, in running this company, but well, what are we doing here? And if we wanna talk joint venture and we wanna talk acquisition, um, I'm open, let's talk. And she said, absolutely. Uh, we're in a space to acquire. The board thinks that you guys might be a good fit. And are you ready to step into, you know, very detailed, sophisticated acquisition talks? And I said, well, I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. I'll learn as I go. And what happened was at that point, you asked me what we did with the executive team. We did not tell the executive team. And I'm not saying that what we did was right. There's lots of books written on this subject matter right now of include the team, bring them on the journey. It's the right thing to do. We are uh, a believer that knowledge is power at the right time and at the right level. And we felt that 
handing over knowledge of acquisition talks to um, a team of people who is only exposed to small pieces um, and would have questions I couldn't answer and that the acquisition may not go through and it could be detrimental you know, to the, the culture and the progress of our company. We opted to hide it from the executive team and the rest of the company for that matter until we knew it was actually going to go. Um, and that was really, really difficult because if it had fallen apart, we would have told them in a, you know, a 30 minute management team meeting um, and let them ask their questions and gone on about our business. Um, rather than spending months having to field hours of stressed out questions of whether or not this acquisition was going to go and what it look, would look like for them. So we didn't tell them. You asked me that and I've been waiting to, to, to share well, I, that. I think, I think it's interesting too because Stephanie, like, um, and for the listeners who are, and I'm curious in your thoughts too on this, but like, for, you know, I've gotten questions on this and, you know, with my dad and I, I mean, for like four years, so I was like running the business, right? So four years, you'd be like, we're selling, we're not selling, we're selling, we're not selling. And for me, it was such a mind, like just whiplash because you're like, I'm going, let's do this. And then you're like, wait a second, I'm going. And then so it's, it's so detrimental to just your, 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 your motivation and your ability to like be the cheerleader as an executive team. So I think it is. You're absolutely right. And you don't realize how emotional it is. You try to tell yourself it's just business. <laughs> it's so it's not extremely true. emotional. <laughs> right. So here's the laughable part. As I stepped into this process, my husband and I, co-founder, I, we had one other executive with a, um, a pretty nice size equity stake, um, but we did not include him in the negotiating process. So there were just two of us um, from a co-founder point of view, we decided that I would take the lead because I held the role of CEO in the company and he would not join in the conversations. Um, when we had to do hardcore negotiating, we would play kind of a good cop, bad cop. Yeah. Well, I just shared that he had a stronger background um, in this world than I did. So I'll tell you what I did. Um, I took three days off of work when we decided we were going to jump into this played sick at home and I read two investment books, one very simple, <laughs> yeah. um, one really pretty sophisticated. And the first one was mergers and acquisitions for dummies. I've got it on my bookshelf right here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? I would recommend that to anyone because number one, it, it gives you that basic foundational level of, terms and understanding. And number two, it makes you realize that as a business owner, you understand a lot more of this than you think you do right. because you're, you're involved in every aspect of your, of your business from negotiating sales to finance. And you're, you're much more well-versed than you think you are. Um, and then the second thing we did coming out of that is we had a strategic discussion about whether or not we hire a broker or an investment banker. And the interesting thing, there were three factors that came up in our decision. And one was in kind of kicking the tires with, with brokers, which we didn't understand the brokerage world really well, except for their fee structure on exactly you know, what they were going to bring to the table that we couldn't bring to the table in negotiating a deal. We were a little big um, for mm -hmm. most small business brokers. I mean, we were almost 10 million in revenue and most of these folks are you know, we're really working in the more one to $5 million space. And we were a little small for an investment banker. You know, we were not going to get the eighteen for an investment banking firm. Even with the EBITDA of, of four and a half million bucks like that and the valuation like that? 
I mean, sure. I mean, a broker would be dying to work with us. And I, I think an investment I mean, like, banker. Like, I was going to say the investment bankers, you know, usually like from the ones that I've heard, you know, they hover around two to three, maybe, maybe the market's a little bit different, but it's because it's so hot right now, like two to three in EBITDA and people are kind of pouncing it. Investment bankers will pounce all over it. Yeah. You know, I, th I think so, but I'll be honest with you. I think we were, we were a little afraid um, of uh, using an investment banker. I, I think mostly because there was a, um, a, a level or a lack of understanding, I think, and, you know, the large fees and that they're going to charge and mm -hmm. how, how in charge of the negotiation are they going to be? And is their motivation going to match ours? Um, well, and, and, to, yeah, yeah, and, and, and to be honest with you, I think some of the investment makers that we, we talked to, um, they probably played in the space in which we were too small for, and we didn't, you know, step down to a more regional sized, you know, investment banker. Yep, so mistake yep. on our part, but what we decided to do based on the work and um, the conversations we did have is we actually decided not to use a broker or an investment banker for one reason alone. One of the major services that both of those entities bring to you is they really step in at the lead of the negotiation because um, this is what they do for a living. And we looked at the world a little bit differently and we decided that nobody knew our business uh, better than the co-founders and that the co-founders were the best, best mouthpiece, the best negotiators, the best litmus test of logic and emotion and ego and all those things that come into it as we went through it. And we should be at the lead, not a broker, not an investment banker. But we weren't you know, so small minded that we didn't realize we needed a very professional team. So what we did instead is we hired a consultant um, who was a, a previous partner at a venture capital firm. Um, we hired a very strong um, M&A attorney um, and accountant. So we had this team of three people standing beside the two co-founders um, who we were paying for their services by the hour. Uh, as we went through this process. And a little that's bit different than 5% it. of 60 million bucks or whatever it is. <laughs> yes, yes. You can pay for a lot of time and material. Well, and yes. I, well, I think it's interesting, Stephanie, because like we did the same thing for various reasons. And, you know, I, I think how, however you articulated, you know, everybody's journey is different because of, 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 of the plethora of different options that are presented to them. And strategic sales, I think, also present a unique situation where if the owner's got, a, if the owner's an emotional ball of craziness, then they, per, you know, any intermediary is going to provide a ton of advice because, because the, because the buyer doesn't see it. But I think you know, in the strategic sale like that, when you're literally taking two puzzle pieces to push them together, the lack of industry knowledge that comes from an investment banker broker is very, it, it kind of bubbles to the top because of what you're true, the, the jigsaw puzzle that you're trying to put together. Very well said. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're exactly right. That industry knowledge and experience becomes the key in, in a strategic acquisition. And you asked me to share some of the numbers and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do so. So we were being acquired by um, a company that at the time was about six and a half years old. Care.com had raised um, about $100 million in venture capital, and they were just flying as fast as they could to capture 
the marketplace uh, and revenue stream, and they weren't profitable. As you know, most um, you know, VC-backed endeavors are not profitable in their first you know, five to 10 years. And so they really wanted to negotiate the sale based on a multiple of revenue. And um, you know, as you know, we've discussed at length now, the strength um, of our company was the EBITDA. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to negotiate the sale on a multiple of, of EBITDA and then, of course, projections um, of what growth could look like with this synergistic buy. Mm-hmm. And that was a real sticking point. We went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And um, you, you can't have everything. You have to choose your top priorities and hope you've chosen right and stick to those and let the other ones either go or compromise on them. And one of the things we chose not to compromise on was we felt we had a much better story and could get a a higher consideration if we negotiated on a multiple of EBITDA. And so we ended up selling for 11 times EBITDA and Mm -hmm. that's where we focused the negotiations and they finally agreed to talk in those terms. Did you have other people at the table that were helped like, because first of all, you had walk. You could walk away, which I think is always a key variable in all this. Yes. But did you have other people that you had been even had preliminary conversations to that you could use as leverage in that um that in that sticking point? What do you mean that I could use as leverage? So as in like because of because you were you know dancing around specific terms and conditions and how you were going to be doing the valuations. I'm just saying that like if you had another potential buyer at the table, you'd be able to say, hey, you know, like we don't, you know, you just kind of have the the, the scarcity or the it's not like a closed deal? You know, that is a commonly asked question. And I, I realize now several years down the road that we, we may not have, have chosen as well as we should have, but we did make a conscious choice. And Care.com asked us right off the bat when we began negotiations to, to, to sign a, you know, no shop agreement. Mm-hmm. And while we, and they knew that we weren't shopping prior, we were not on the blocks. Um, and so while we were in negotiations with them, we had zero leverage. Uh, we did not entertain conver- even conversations with another potential buyer. Uh, the one thing that we did have was we did have a comp and that uh, Intuit had recently purchased a payroll company called Paycycle. Um, who was a small business payroll company, but had a similar model with a high level of client service and um, a a very sophisticated enterprise technology solution. Do you know who Cami Graf is? I don't know them. So I thought she sold Tax Act to, uh, she tried to sell it into it, but DOJ. Uh, blocked her, or no, it was H&R Block. Anyway, so yeah, very similar uh, uh, structure, but... Yeah, and that acquisition had gone very successfully. So we were able, you know, to use that as a comp. But what I was going to share with you, which I think gives a little bit of that authentic insight that people are listening for, because we didn't have that leverage, uh, we were a couple of months into the negotiations. We'd signed NDAs. There's no term sheet yet. One of the things we did do also in our acquisition is a lot of people would get a term sheet on the table right off the bat and then start trying to hammer out or change um, or add to what is already on paper. Uh, We took the approach that we didn't want a term sheet until we'd hammered out all the details, which made us have to ask lots of detailed questions. What do you mean by that? Why, why, why aren't you interested in this tenant of what we want in the agreement? And we did not um, entertain a term sheet 
until we'd hammered out probably 80 to 90% um, of the terms of the deal. So when the term sheet came through, it wasn't a starting point. It was the launching pad for the detailed agreement. But we were a couple of months into these detailed conversations because we were not pushing a term sheet yet. And we were too far apart. Um, and as you just said, you know, we had the ability to walk away and we absolutely put that at the top of our priority list and reminded ourselves that we didn't have to do this. It was probably the right thing to do, but we didn't have to. And the uh, board and the valuation experts for care.com had come back and they had offered us a price of 39 and a hundred percent stock in care.com. And you know, we're business owners who bootstrap the business and something you have to realize about that is there's no way a, a co-founder or a set of co-founders like us were going to drink somebody else's Kool-Aid completely. <laughs> um, we also had to realize that they were VC backed and, you know, they believed in their mission and we probably couldn't get 100% cash either. But they were at 39. We were at 65. We wanted 80% cash. They wanted 100% stock, and we just kept talking in circles around this. And finally, we were on a Skype conversation one day, and I just said, you know what? We're just too far apart. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to argue. And by the way, I love your story, and I think you love ours. And I really like what I'm seeing about the honesty and integrity and um, the plans for growth and strategically, you know, how you're running the company. But we're too far apart, and this isn't the day. So maybe we need to continue the marketing partnership. Maybe we strengthen a joint venture kind of a partnership over the next year or two, and we give it a run at another time because I'm not willing to compromise at the level that you would like for us to, and I don't think you are. And um, the conversations ended, and they ended for about two months. Um, and then for whatever reason, I still don't know the story to this day. I think maybe the board went to work and did some real data crunching um, on the synergies and the growth that could occur. And they came back eight weeks later and they said, okay, we are now willing to talk about an acquisition that is 50-50, uh, 50 cash, 50 stock, um, and we are willing to negotiate within your range. So a couple things. One, one is what in the heck happened to you and your husband co-founder's mental state after that for two months? Like what like energy levels, like talk between you two, like what was going on in your guys' conversations? You know, yeah, I'm a few years down the road and you think I would have good clarity and reflection. It, it, it still is, is like this crazy, that time was a crazy blur <laughs> of, of emotions and second guessing. And I still feel that way. So I remember walking in the door at home the day that I had shut it down. And we had talked about it. It wasn't like I just was running rogue. We mm -hmm. had said, you know, okay, we're going to have the conversation. You're going to have the conversation, Stephanie, and we're going to say we're too far apart and we're going to see how they respond. So I walked in the door and my husband looked at me and he said, so where are we? And I said, it's over. Oh my gosh. And, and I mean, he, he, and he looked at me and I looked at him and I said, we probably shouldn't talk about it till tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that was probably a good thing because right. I don't know, there might've been a great big glass of wine and some crying and the spilled <laughs> milk in that moment. And, you know, the next day we sat down and we said the two things you would expect, the extreme of 
okay, we said this is what we were going to do and we were going to accept the outcome um, and we have to accept it. And then we said, you know, oh my God, do you think we've just thrown away the best opportunity that we in the company could ever have? And um, we looked at each other and said, well, it's done, so we can't go back now. <laughs> and so we actually made a decision in that moment. This is one thing I do remember clearly, that we would let ourselves just go back to work and settle on it for about a month. And then we would come back together and say, okay, do we want to go back to them and say we're willing to entertain uh, negotiation talks um, on your terms. And we came back together after about a month. And the one thing that got us to say no is that we were not willing to sell the company for um, 100% stock. Mm -hmm. And we knew that that was just too risky for us. It was yeah. just far yeah, yeah. too risky. And then they came back to us. So it, it went our way. Well, and I think what's so, you know, going back to one of your comments earlier is, can you imagine, like, think about with you guys, even though you have generational changing wealth that you're producing still and you had the walk away ability so I, I do i do think that even though you didn't have another buyer at the table that is definitely having another buyer at the table because it's yourself and it's, you're, you're making a bunch of money but still you still had a, an emotional roller coaster to go over with you and your husband and could you have imagined had you told all your executives what that would have done to them and so i just think you know it's kind of put an exclamation point kind of on our, on our point earlier because it's regardless of how practical you are it is an emotional roller coaster it, it is it is an emotional nightmare that you have to get in check and keep it from being a nightmare and i have to tell you to, to fast forward through this maybe this doesn't happen to um most people being acquired, maybe we were so practical and so logical and so grounded for a period of time that when we snapped, it was in an odd place. The negotiation of the earnout almost undid me. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I don't know why. It's very typical. It's very standard. Can you explain um, that? What do you mean by that? You know, we had, we had agreed to the the total consideration, um, we had agreed to 55 million to give you the terms, 50% in cash, 50% in stock. And then the term sheet came and we had not discussed the details of an earnout in our negotiation. We probably should have. We knew there'd be some kind of an earnout, but we really had not addressed that in detail. And maybe that was why it was so uh, uh, alarming because it was a new topic. And the earnout was 20% um, of the total value over a two-year period. And Bill and I, you know, would stay and do whatever was needed to integrate. The larger company was looking to IPO and needed revenue and acquisition in order to IPO. And we knew we were um, that icing on the cake and that that would be a journey. But then we got into the earnout discussions, and this is where I think my ego flared for the first time in an unproductive way. We got into the earnout discussions, and all those terms I just quoted are very typical. But then there started to be discussions, you know, okay, well, we expect you to have 15% more growth than has been your CAGR for the last 10 years <laughs> in order to get the earnout. And we turned it right back around on them and said, well, you know, we're used to investing at X levels in all of these areas, you know, in order to mm -hmm. have the growth that we've had. What if you pull the plug on that? 
you, you now will own us. You know, what if you just clamp down um, on the expenses that are absolutely necessary for synergies to come true um, and to experience growth and for us to deliver the quality um, that our clients are used to? What if you derail the ability for us to grow? And so we were polarized, really throwing daggers at each other, you know, of, okay, well, if you guys are so great, then as soon as you combine with us, we don't even have to do anything and you'll just double in size. And, you know, we, I mean, I'm, that's not what they were really saying, but <laughs> you know, what it felt right. like, you know? <laughs> yeah. and then we were turning it right back on them, you know, well, you know, what if you guys just come in here and fire everybody except for the two of us? You know, and expect us to somehow run this business, which is, I mean, extremely extreme. I'm just... We're getting I'm, the point across. <laughs> I'm speaking to the emotions that were on both sides. And I, I literally called the CEO um, maybe about 10 days uh, before we signed the agreement, which um, for the listeners out there, if you haven't been through this, you know, once you start into the detail of the agreement, you know, this is a 100-page document you know, with lawyers coming up with worst case scenarios that have you on the ledge every hour, which is also uh, a part of the process that you have to try to keep in check. And we were in the thick of that. And I called the CEO, I called Sheila Marcello, and I was just real honest. I said, look, you know, we've been having these really ugly what if conversations around the earnout, And I just have to be really honest with you. There isn't anything in the agreement that actually commits to your level of investment um, your level of buy-in that the company runs really well and you should only improve upon that, not derail it. Um, and and I, I'm not saying the deal's not going to go through, but I'm feeling really uncomfortable and I'm a few days from telling my executive team and I want to feel confident in telling them that we're being acquired by a company who sees the world through our lens and not be lying about it. And she was speechless. She didn't know what to say to that. That was more of an emotional conversation than it was a business conversation. But what followed that is we added tenants to the agreement of the level investment that they would not only allow to continue, um, but tangibly would enhance. They were going to put a million dollars of larger company funds into a marketing campaign that we didn't have the dollars for previously. And we just basically tangibly started to put things in writing. What Bill and I were going to do, one of their biggest fears is that we were going to leave. You know, we, we didn't really have to have maybe the last year of the earnout, And you know that happens. And mm-hmm. we're just sitting here talking about the fact that we were already creating gener- generational wealth prior to the sale. They were really worried we were going to leave. So mm-hmm. we strengthened the language um, around us seeing our full two years through and everything, everything worked out. But that two week period in discussing the earnout was really difficult. Well, and, and it is emotionally and technically from a negotiation standpoint, I just keep going back to because you had the ability to walk away allows you to get through that where so many times I see stuff and we're like, you know, even if it's an investment banker or broker going up or whoever the, the other person is negotiating behind the, you know, and for the, the, the sellers that you end up giving up because you're scared you're going to lose everything if you don't have alternative options because the emotions totally overtake the entire process. Yes. Yes. Um, and if you don't feel, and that's a, that's a really good point, Ryan. If you, if you don't feel like you have another option, um, and really at this point for, you know, a business owner in life, I mean, you feel like this is your life. 
-hmm. And there is not, there's one option that's, that's directing and controlling your, your entire life and the future of it in that moment. It's really stressful. And you're right. If you've got a broker or an investment banker um, who is not aligned, uh, that's even more difficult. You feel like there's another human being in this mix who is going to derail your future. Or, or, or push you into, and because again, there's pros and cons of everybody that's at the table, right? Of the team advisors, but just knowing this dynamic that we're talking about is so important because they get paid to sell the company, right? So if you pulled that off the table, like they're losing a ridiculous commission, right? But it was right for you. So I think it's just something to so be aware of. And so let's, how, after you close, what was the, what was it like in the, the after the, the, you know, the event of, of selling, you know, whether it was telling your executive team to like you and your husband's roles in the business and what was it like being an employee? You know, there's two extreme sides to my thought process and I'll share the one that everybody's expecting first. When you decide to become an entrepreneur and you have the good fortune to grow a successful business and to be captain of your own ship, um, you know, what's the phrase that you're professionally unemployable? And <laughs> yeah. the reality is you want to be professionally unemployable. It is really, really difficult to work for someone else. Um, I'll never do it again. And by the way, um, the transition and the integration with care.com is very professional and um, very well thought out and very respectful um, of the company that they'd acquired and learned, giving them time to learn us and grow us appropriately. And yet there's one CEO. Um, I think that conversation even came up in my naivete and I'm, I'm, I'm authentically outing my naivete. You know, I was the CEO, you know, of a, you know, mid-sized company for many years. And all of a sudden there was this discussion around titles and I just thought, oh gosh, should we really be talking about titles? We're only going to be here for a couple of years. And I think I said off the cuff, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the CEO of, now rebranded care.com homepage. And I think the response I got back was, no, there's only one CEO. <laughs> so, so it's not easy. I mean, I'm admitting it is, it is, oh, not, it is not easy. Um, however, on the other side of this, and I think I've mentioned this throughout our conversation, Ryan, that it was imperative um, for, for us to not only execute an exit that was great for the co-founders um, but was great for the future of the company and I really worked hard at never losing sight that I believed that this acquisition was going to be great for the future of the company and I had a responsibility over the next two years to maximize what I could do to achieve that in combining cultures in growing the executive team in making sure none of the executive team uh, felt threatened and left. Um, I had to talk a lot of people off the ledge for the first couple of months <laughs> after the execution, you know, was the acquisition was executed. Yep. Um, and, and I went on a uh, 15 month traveling junket, speaking, um, uh, teaching anywhere I could get into the public eye as now a division of care.com in order to lift the, the image and the PR um, marketing and sales, you know, of us now as an entity 
mm-hmm. of care.com. And I mean, literally for probably the first, the 18 months of the 24 that we stayed, I mean, I was engaged 50 to 60 hours a week. Oh, wow. And, and that is hardcore. And I will say this, I do it again. As hard as it was, I do it again. And I and say that? that because here we are, I have now been, we have been out of the company for four years. 100% of the executive team is still there. Oh, wow. No one has left. The company has tripled in size. From an acquisition point of view, you know, a buyer would love to say that the perfect acquisition, what's the, the stat, um, is, is that you have a return on your investment within seven years. And just you know, in running the math in my head with the information that I hold, I think their return on investment occurred at probably between five and six years. That's awesome. And, and I really do believe that Bill and I staying for those two years was instrumental in, in the information I just shared. So while you're doing that, that PR campaign for a couple of years and working that long, which probably helped with not getting lost in your thoughts of what, you, what else you could be doing, where did your mind take it when you started having a foot out the other door? Where were you thinking about what you should start doing? I mean, with the, with the you know, generational wealth that you have, like what was life after starting to crystallize or was there kind of a fuzzy picture that you were starting to you know, focus more on as, uh, as that uh, next chapter was getting closer? Where, where was your head at and what was uh, some of the thoughts? So Ryan, I'm four years past the exit. Uh, and I still don't have that answer. Uh, and I don't know if that's common or not, but I'm just sharing transparently. Uh, I will say we took a year and just did things that you think you should do when you have an exit. We read, we traveled, we visited family, uh, we played golf. And then after a year, we were like, oh my gosh, this is totally overrated. <laughs> 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 we, we've, we've got to be busy. Uh, but the next comment that I'm going to share, and I'm still in this space, is one of the things I miss most is running and growing a business. I just I love it, and so did my husband, and I really miss it. And I don't want to do it at that level again. It's the strangest dichotomy. So I... I really do think that there might be another business, but I, I don't, I, I have to admit, I'm, I don't think I have it in me to work that hard again. Um, you know, when you bootstrap for 22 years, you know, I think you work two lifetimes in that time period. Right. right. And, and it's really funny because, you know, I, I really miss it and neither my husband nor I are willing to jump back in yet. So what in the world have we been doing? Um, I lifted my head up after the acquisition and realized that there really aren't very many women in entrepreneurship who've really taken the path to grow a business of scale. And I felt a little bit of a responsibility to give back. So I've written a book um, that has business and life strategies um, for women entrepreneurs who you know, are looking to take the leap or the risk of scaling. Uh, we've become serious angel investors. And I also teach around um, angel investment. I mentor entrepreneurs as well as potential investors. Um, so I'm dabbling in things that are keeping me very busy. 
working at trying to become strategic and thoughtful about, you know, what is, what is our philanthropic strategy? But, and it keeps us very, very busy. But as you can see, I'm not doing anything that's, that's earning, you know, a sizable amount of money and the capitalist in me is a little bit hungry. So <laughs> I don't know what's next. And it's part of the reason that I love talking to people like you, uh, because it keeps, it keeps me learning and aware of what's out there and where we, where we may go next from a business point of view and what that looks like. Well, and for the listeners, the book is called All In. We'll have a link in the show notes for that. And you know what's interesting, Stephanie, is like, and maybe I'll share kind of my two cents after hundreds of interviews, like kind of going through the same stuff myself. Is there, there's a, some data points about us, our DNA as entrepreneurs that I've kind of started to, you know, get wrapped my head around. And there's a, Shana Core wrote this book called The Happiness Advantage. So I kind of give you a couple ideas where I'm pulling this stuff from. And his definition of happiness is, not just happiness itself, but it's the joy we experience in pursuit of our fullest potential, which I thought was unbelievable. It's the, it's the journey and it's the joy we experience along the way. And Ray Daly has got a couple ways of articulating that as well. And um, so then a, another layer on top of that, that I, I very much enjoy. There's a, a guy named Mihai Kinchek's Mihai, which if you asked me to spell that, I would have zero idea. Um, but he wrote, a, he invented a term called flow back in the day in the in the mid 70s and i can put a diagram in the in the show notes too but it's i've read the book isn't it amazing it's amazing so, so for the for the listeners it's like it's the tension between your skills and your environment and your and your in uh, the challenges and being in that perfect tension so here's my i'm curious on your because you've read it stephanie's i believe and so actually one more point on that is it's the it's the perfect tension between the challenges that you have and your skill sets that are perfectly intentioned, but that your environment gives you feedback on how you're doing in that state of flow. And I believe, Stephanie, that entrepreneurship provides that environment. So we as entrepreneurs live in a state of flow, which is like a high, like 80 to 90% of the time, because it, whether it, it, there's winning that new client or implementing that $2 million project or doing these things that we're risking. So our challenges and our environment are perfectly intentioned, but then we get feedback Im almost immediately on whether it worked or not. So there's like this cycle of just being on the high that is a natural high that I think when we sell, like you kind of go through this withdrawal that people don't know how to deal with. You're right. It's natural high is a good way to describe it. And as an entrepreneur, you are a jack or a jill of all trades, regardless of the size of your company, big or small. And that presents, as you said, from flow, constant challenge and then constant skill building. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're talking about the feedback loop, but for personally, you get to see experience um, and get that high, as you called it, from, from growing a new set of knowledge, a new skill that, you know, you apply to some level um, in your business that creates accomplishment. And that's that cycle in flow that you're right. Um, entrepreneurs get to have that on a regular basis because they're not doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I, I have a, a quote that it's not from flow, but I think it sums up this notion. And it's not my quote. I wish I could, I could claim it. But I'd like to say that Life is not about the pursuit of happiness. It's about happiness that comes from pursuit.
Yeah, yeah, very similar to that one from Sh- Yeah, it's all it's about the enjoying the creation along the way. And to go back to your point, I'm on uh, about the you know the capitalist in you. I think the wrapper around all this, Stephanie, is that it's not just the the knowledge uh, that is gained throughout all the challenges, but you literally have feedback from society and the marketplace that what you're doing is valuable because you have a balance sheet that actually shows how well you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're, you're, that's a very simple way to say it and it couldn't be uh, more correct. And I'll use an example from my current life in the release of all in, you know, I was fortunate enough to get to go on a speaking junket, which is what folks do now rather than book tours. And I was speaking two or three times a week around the country um, for about a year. Um, and I enjoy speaking. I've always used it uh, as a tenant for growing the business. Um, and I like to teach and I like to leave messages behind. It's something I'm very comfortable with. And I have since dialed my speaking down to two or three times a quarter, not two or three times a month. And the main reason is, you know, when you're, you're speaking um, really to give back, which is what I've been doing, um, there isn't a balance sheet that's going to give you a measure um, of the business you just grew from speaking at that conference or the business development partners that you brought on. And I call it that, you know, there's really no thrill of the hunt. And I really like the thrill of the hunt. <laughs> I know. I love it. I, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's a dichotomy. And then, you know, cause again, you don't want to go risk everything, but you still want to be like, shown that you, what you're doing is impactful and people care about it other than just the feel goods. <laughs> exactly. So, so in a couple of years, you'll have to have me back on the podcast when I've found the, the right level of business life once again, because I haven't <laughs> found it yet. Well, Stephanie, with a, if there's one thing that you want to leave the listeners with, cause we talked about a bunch and I absolutely love the, the app, the transparency that you give. If there's one thing you want to reiterate or, leave our listeners with, what would it be? You know, we talked a lot about uh, growing the company and then the deal, um, the acquisition. I I think what I'd leave the listeners with is that if you're looking towards an exit in, you know, the next two to five years, uh, that it's not only a nice to do, but it's a responsibility in order to, to navigate the most successful exit possible, to to just, as you said, become aware, to get educated, um, and to spend um, a few days a year, really, uh, learning about what your business is worth, where it could go, and who might be interested in it. Uh, And I think that that will be instrumental um, in executing an exit. Well said. And if our listeners want to reach out to you, get a book, what is the best uh, contact information for you? So uh, the best way to find the book is it's on Amazon, um, all in Stephanie Breedlove. Um, I'm really active on Twitter. I write a couple of columns um, that I'm, I'm constantly hawking and posting. And my handle is at BreedloveSteph. And um, I have a website and my email on the website is very simple. It's Stephanie at stephaniebreedlove.com. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on. One of the favorite, uh, my favorite episodes I've done so far. Oh, thank you, Ryan. It was really fun. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview with Stephanie as much as I enjoyed 
interviewing her and just learning from her about what she went through, how she did it. I can't tell you how many takeaways that I had out of it, but if there's a couple things that I want to regurgitate and dish back to you is she built a really healthy business and she thought about a lot of these things along the way. As you can tell, even someone that has two co-founders that have MBAs that talk to everybody that did everything you possibly can think of to do things right, you still don't know what you don't know. So being open to new events and new data as it comes through you and knowing what's important to you will literally help you get to where you wanna go faster because as things happen, as buyers pop up or as things happen in the negotiation and you are having that anxiety and you having the emotional roller coasters, you have determined what's important to you, whether it's the numbers or the employees or the people or what's gonna happen to your business. You've thought through this because it takes a lot of time to figure out what's important. And if you built a healthy business, then you've got the ability to walk away even though there's a more emotional turmoil there or you've got the ability to choose a different buyer or you just have choices which puts you back into the driver's seat. So just think about this stuff. I had a call with two people in the last 24 hours where they're choosing not to think about it because they like their business and they like the cash and they like to show up to work every day. Yes, I get it, but think about this stuff because it's going to happen faster than you think. And if you don't think about it, and if you don't put the work into it like Stephanie did, think about how much work she did and she still went through ups and downs. And so just I challenge you to think about the things that are important, start putting the plan in place between the advisors, the technical advice, and just work towards something that you want to accomplish because otherwise reactionary stuff is going to happen and you're going to be a victim of circumstances instead of choosing the outcome that you want. If you want more of this kind of information, go to GXP Collaborative's website. If you really enjoy these episodes, please shoot this to anybody that you know that's a business owner. Share it. Bring anybody that you think I should interview, whether it's owners or technical advice, shoot them my way. I'm happy to interview them. I'm always trying to get out more content that's valuable to you guys. If you're interested in potentially signing up for one-on-one consulting, reach out to me at ryan at gexpcollaborative.com. If you think you're ready for the full-blown growth and exit plan, reach out to me and my team on our website. Otherwise, go on to iTunes, give me a rating. I really appreciate your support and being an avid listener. We hit, I think it was 300,000 or close to it, downloaded episodes by this episode, and I'm assuming this one's going to accelerate that. So please, everybody share the love, and I appreciate it. So with that, I will see you next week.